Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. Her name is Joe Patty Unisteri, and she is publishing a book in a couple of months. She's actually going to be traveling, so we're going to talk about this book before it's published in October. The title of the book is Traveling Off the X, and it's about her journeys really all over the world, including Romania, Morocco, Tikal, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Borneo. So she's definitely covered some territory. She's also a fiction writer and a poet as well. So she can talk about those books in greater detail. But uh, I haven't read the book, but I'm definitely interested to hear what she says. So Joe, Patty, Ministeri, are you there? I'm here. Thank you very much, William, for inviting me on. Great. Well, I'm glad. I'm delighted that you we got together kind of an Difficult circumstances for me to have this interview, but uh, for people who may not know your background, can you talk about your travels all over the world and what led you to write this book, Traveling Off the X? Yes, thank you, William. I'm right now in Bethel, Alaska, for those of you who know where that is. I, I came from a family which moved quite a bit because of my father's work. We moved 13 times before I was 11. And I'm the oldest of six children, four brothers and a sister. I went to Georgetown Foreign Service School. I graduated from there. And while I was at Georgetown, I also, I liked to travel and I, I also was working there. So the only way to do that, our parents at that time certainly couldn't afford to give us trips to Europe and so forth, was I applied for a lot of fellowships and contests, which I won. And so uh, my first Real travel by myself was when I was 20 years old. I was dropped behind the Iron Curtain as part of the Circumnavigators Fellowship. That started me thinking about international work. I have worked internationally for most of my life. Um, my work has taken me all over the world. I've worked in indigenous populations. I've, I've gone and retrained. I have a graduate degree in education and a traditional Chinese medicine um, background and diploma from New Zealand. We're dual citizens of New Zealand. My daughter was born there, Sequoia, and my son was born in Australia. I started in earnest my work um, through the State Department, and I was retrained there and uh, with the Department of the Army in Human Terrain Systems starting in 2008-2010 and have been working ever since mostly in conflict zones. And what attracted you to those conflict zones? I would say uh, two reasons. I suppose when I was growing up, I, my mother took us to the library a lot, and she had a list of books that you were supposed to have read by the time you went to college. She gave it to me when I was 12, I think. I was always an avid reader, and I read a lot of history, both biographies of historical figures and um, sometimes fiction like the Scarlet Pimpernel about the French Revolution, uh, first person accounts like Out of the Night. Um, so I, yes, I was always thinking about it, I suppose. And I, I was inspired to do more humanitarian work often by some of the teachers I had. I went between public school and Catholic schools. And uh, even at Georgetown, it was a kind of a maxim to us that the more that we received, the, uh, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. That you were, you had this opportunity for a great education and you should share it in whatever service way you thought you could. 
Gotcha. So your conflict zones attracted you so you could go there and teach. Is that correct in that capacity? Not exactly. Um, I was first in a conflict zone. I guess you'd say I was working on a kibbutz in Israel back in the early 70s. Um, and was visiting my friends on both borders. At that time, the Sinai was still part of Israel and went up to the Golan Heights. And uh, there I saw firsthand when the PLO had attacked in the children's houses. So I was already exposed to conflict zones in my 20s. And then I suppose part of the reason that I'm working back from time to time and going back into one soon is I have a kind of grace under pressure at this point in my life from many years of doing it. And um, not everybody can do that. So uh, both in health and education, especially, those are the, the jobs that I feel like I have the experience now. The, each one is very different and has its its different requirements and different culture and so forth. But I'm I've grown up being adaptable and having to case a place very soon, including living in New York City before Giuliani. Um, right. So uh, that's a war. That's a conflict zone, right? It certainly was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you've been to Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel is really kind of low to hot conflict. Um, Ukraine, Armenia, Morocco. So there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of really those uh, tensions all over the world. Unfortunately, yes. And sometimes I'll go to a place like I was in Morocco 2006, 2007. When I got to Casablanca, it was fairly calm. But uh, in the space of the time I was there, there were six bombings in one month. I happened to live in the Jewish quarter right across from Yeshiva and down from a synagogue and very near the American Language Center and the American Consulate when they got bombed. So um, wow. I often go to a place, and when I'm there, it just so happens timing-wise. I was five times in Afghanistan, twice in Iraq, Kurdistan, during and right after the siege uh, by Daesh in Mosul. Oh, wow. So that's fairly recent. Is that correct? What year is that? Yes, I left Iraq in 2020, March of 2020, when uh, everything was closed down because of the covid can, all right. can you recall? Can you recollect for me what happened in the Casablanca bombings? I don't. I don't remember those ones. I don't think they were broadcast so far. I mean, you know, there was less social media uh, and internet contact from that area. In in it's only sixteen years ago, but still, big difference. Um, it was very strange. It was just uh, from the bidonvilles, the kind of. Um, shanty towns and ghetto areas and they there were two brothers that blew up in one the one saturday morning i remember because it was two bombings within 20 minutes of each other so i just sort of when the first one hit and and everything shook my bed everything was shaky oh, i have to get out of here I was grabbing my go bag to go down stairs and um hadn't even gotten to the place where I needed to get to when the second bomb went out. And it ended up being two brothers who blew themselves up. Um, and then there were four afterwards. It was just a spate. That was before I think people were really aware of how much uh, those terrorist organizations, Islamic terrorist organizations, had infiltrated in Northern Africa again. I see. So that was... Uh... 
uh, Islamic terrorism was the purpose? Were they trying to overthrow the government or what? Um, from what I understand from the investigations afterwards, at least those two brothers, those are the bombings right, right near me, right two blocks from me. Um, sometimes they're paid, unfortunately. You know, it's a question. They'll be a mother and there's a very poor family. They go to the bidonvilles and they find people and um, to make a, a violent expression um, on the behalf of different groups that claimed responsibility. Right. And uh, so how long were you in Morocco for? I was just there for a year, 2006, 2007. Gotcha. I had been there before during the Green March when I was uh, quite a bit younger. And the the contrast was unbelievable how in one generation it can go from being a place that had Parisian fashions and tourism was thriving and you didn't have to cover up as a woman to you do. <laughs> in right. one generation, yes. And what was the Green March? Oh, La Marche Verte. The Green March was um, one of the most peaceful demonstrations for stopping a war that the world has ever had. It was the Spanish and had claimed a part of the southern border, which was disputed. And uh, the Moroccans went, and that, that was with women and men. It's what my book starts out with. Uh, what's the second chapter uh, about being part of going down there with them. It was a very unusual uh, event in which both nations backed down because of a peaceful protest. Interesting. And isn't the southern border of Morocco still disputed? There's territorial disputes down there. Is that correct? Yes, it's still ongoing. <laughs> so, but at least they're not warring, I think. I think there's right. multiple fighting erupts from time to time, but nothing like it was before. And the Spanish still have a little out enclave in Morocco at Queta, right? Or Sweat, you know, C-U-E-T-A. I think they have a tiny little town there. Ceuta, yes. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> so you went from Morocco. What were your thoughts kind of being in Central Asia, kind of Armenia, Siberia, et cetera? Um, I had been dropped behind the Iron Curtain uh, when it was the Iron Curtain, that's where my book starts as a part of the fellowship from Circumnavigators Fellowship. Can you describe what the Circumnavigators Fellowship is? I'm not familiar with that. Yes, it's a it's a club. It used to be an all male club um, that sponsors travel. That really is uh, all different kinds of people who are involved in it and. When I was at Georgetown, now it's spread out from not just Georgetown, but at the time it was just mainly Georgetown that uh, for foreign service students could apply for this fellowship. It was a competition. You had to write a project. You had to go by five different means of travel other than the one you went on. You have to understand there was no cell phones, no internet in those days. Um, and you had to give a report at the end. Uh, I gave my report at the United Nations. So... It was um, only for men at the time. This has happened at different times in my life, and I just decided it was worth a try because I was on the judo team and the philodemic society, the debate team, and other things. So I didn't put my full name. I just put J. Munisteri. Anyway, they, they decided I won. They came down from New York, and when they found out that I was a female, they, they changed the award that year. Um, so I had been behind the Iron Curtain and, and knew what it was like and was absolutely stunned um, because the propaganda at that time was 
this is a wonderful place for everybody, especially in Russia. And then when you went there, it was entirely different. Um, what were your impressions of its differences? I do explain them in the in the book as well. Uh, it didn't look like it had much recovered from World War II in some of the areas that I knew. Uh, infrastructure is poor. There is nothing on the shelves. There are long lines. Um, people just look completely tense and overworked. In Romania, especially under Ceausescu, everyone is paranoid about talking to any stranger. Had to go out in a rowboat to talk to one person. Um, Russia was better, I would say, at that time than, let's say, East Germany or uh, even Poland. But by the time I went back in 2008 to Armenia and in Russia, I was in Siberia in 2011, 2012, it had entirely changed hmm. for the better. For the better, the Czech Republic, unbelievable. Um, so, yes, the, the the fall of communism helped those areas tremendously. Gotcha. And, and Armenia was, it's still kind of a, there's conflicts there. What years were you in Armenia? 2008 through 2010, I was working at the um, uh, Yerevan State Medical University. I often work in medical universities. And um, again, yes, the Nagorno-Karabakh um, situation with Azerbaijan has heated up in the last couple of years. I do write articles that are published, by the way, in Small Wars Journal. Um, I have a couple of articles on Armenia in, in communities, digital news. I write for them every week, um, CDN, on which I explain if people are more interested in some of the reasons. Um, yes, uh, it's a, most people don't realize it was the, really the first Christian country in the world that continues as a Christian country, but surrounded by enemies. It's a amazing place. I, I loved it there. Yeah. Uh, food is really good. There's a lot of Armenians in Los Angeles. So a lot of Armenians and, in other places, yes. Yeah. So there's a huge like uh, diaspora actually of Armenians. Yes. Probably more Armenians outside of Armenia. And they endured the I'm sure the genocide is still fresh in their minds. Would you agree with that? Oh yes. Still very much part of their culture, their music, their art. They are an incredible people, and they're fairly homogeneous people, too. Interesting. So what else, what other place? I mean, you weren't just in Europe or behind the Iron Curtain or in Africa. You've also been to Borneo and some yeah. other. Please talk about that. Uh, again, often I get jobs um, that other people don't want. And my life has just sort of revolved around, especially once I passed 50, it was very difficult to get jobs some places because people are very prejudiced age-wise. And um, so sometimes the jobs I got were jobs nobody else wanted, but they ended up being some of the best jobs I've had. And one of them was in Borneo, in literally the jungles of Borneo, where the quote-unquote wild men and women of Borneo are. I was based out of... Um, the state of Sarawak in a little town called Sarian, but I went to the Indonesian border every week. I was in charge of five school district areas as a mentor for the language teachers in the jungle schools. I worked with my Iban and Bidayu colleagues, amazing, amazing people, um, who unfortunately being very displaced by both BP Petroleum, which is cutting down all the forests there, and um, 
they are not uh, Islamic. They have their own religion as well as uh, Christian religions there, but those children are being taken away similarly to Canadian, American, Australian, indigenous children during the times of the boarding schools. That's still existing there. I talk about it a lot in the book. Right. So it's a kind of like uh, taking away their native traditions and things like that and whatever, it, Indonesianizing them, if you if you had something like that. Well, there's a lot of Islam, Islamic recruitment there as well. Gotcha. And yeah, that's a place of conflict too. I don't know if it was Borneo, but I think it was East Timor or somewhere near there. There was huge conflict between Islamists and communists. Um, what other impressions do you have? What, I mean, you've traveled around a bunch of other places. Do you have any other locations you'd like to mention? Well, Saudi Arabia, I, I was hired um, in what is touted as the largest and University for Females in the Islamic World, Princess Noor University. And um, that really opened my eyes. One of my brothers had worked there in a different regard. And if you work there as a man, it's very different than working there as a woman. Um, so I, I speak at length about some of the situations that we encountered when we were trying to teach medical English and the sanctions against even looking at illustrations or videos or anything of if you're a female of the male anatomy, um, the family honor system that results a lot of times in the death of female students um, to my students directly. So um, there and in Pakistan, even more so in some ways than Afghanistan, uh, what females have to do to get educated is just so difficult. And I don't think most people who have grown up in, in the West or even outside of those particular ways of, of um, implementing society can understand what it's like. Right. I mean, didn't women just get the opportunity to drive in Saudi Arabia? So it's just a really different culture. Well, there was a funny song um, that actually Saudi men made, uh, called No Woman, No Drive, sort of a takeoff on a Jamaican song, I think. Right. And then, uh, Bob Marley song, No Woman, No... That's right, that's right, it's a Bob Marley song. And No Woman, No Cry. That's right, No Woman, No Cry, No Woman, No Drive. Um, there, I mean, there's more movement now with the new leadership there, but you couldn't even, it's not just driving, it's just moving anywhere uh, without male permission. It's uh, in Pakistan too, you know, it didn't used to be that way before the partition and even after the partition, because my father worked in Pakistan in the 50s and 60s and it was much more open. There was women's sports, there was more music, but not anymore. Yeah, it is interesting how some of these places went from Western influence to more Islamification. Uh, Iran and I mean Saudi Arabia was always conservative, but some of these other places. When was the Afghanistan? Is it also? I forget that there was a, the Silk Road and the um, what was it called? The Magic Bus used to go from London to Kabul, and uh, there were female bus drivers in Afghanistan. There were Persian fashions in Afghanistan. There was I my good. A friend and roommate, she's passed away now, Shala Hyman, on, when I worked on Kaya Base in Afghanistan. She was originally from Afghanistan, an American citizen, married an American. Um, 
grew up in Panjshir, and her parents were both university professors before uh, the coup in the 70s. Yes, it changed, and under the Taliban, and of course now again, I mean, it will just, the, the gates will close for women. Right, gates were closed for women, and almost kind of went back into like a Luddite, non-technical mentality, like non-progressive. It's very strange. At least that's what it seemingly seemed to happen. What years were you in I, Afghanistan? I was there on and off for different projects and jobs from 2014 through 2017. So, what are your thoughts about the U.S. pretty much packing up and leaving? I actually talk about that in one of my articles <laughs> on Afghanistan. I wrote just recently. I won't go into a depth here. Um, it's kind of, kind of controversial. I think there's two sides to it. I think we wasted a lot of money there, especially in education. It did not go to the places it was supposed to go to at all. It went to the worst networks, unfortunately. There was just so much corruption on both sides. I'm not talking about just Afghan sides. Right. So... Yeah. Um, it's a me it was a mess. It's been a mess for a long time. Um, on the other hand, I think we stayed there too long. Yeah. I don't even know why we were there. So if, I don't know if that's controversial, but I don't know what we're doing with military on the complete other side of the globe. Seems very strange. Um, yeah. Did you, were you aware of any, like there's rumors of like massive heroin trafficking picking up after the U.S. arrived there. Is that true? I have to be careful. Okay, well, then don't, you don't what have to answer. What I was going to say is um, there's lots of documented evidence. And the, the trouble is when you also have, I worked on Ascension Island, for example, which is not a country. It's, a, it's just a military base. When, when you have places, and certainly Afghanistan is like that, where you have pilots and planes from all over with no regulations, of course, it's an open season for trafficking. There's nobody checking them coming in um, or going out. Um, and we're talking about not just drugs. We're talking about children and we're talking about weapons. And yes, you know, conflict zones, all the vultures go there. Right. Yeah, it's sad. And it's probably just going to get, I mean, with the U.S. not there, there's probably some pretty fascinating or Terrible changes will probably happen there. Um, what else would you like to cover that's in your book? Well, part of the reason I wrote it also to honor some of the people who have passed away doing really important work um, was that when I was looking for accounts of people who had been working not as journalists or not as military in other countries, I, I didn't find very many books, uh, nonfiction. So the day-to-day, -day, I don't, I mean, I have lived on military bases and worked there too, and I have been trained with the U.S. military and the U.S. State Department, but I worked and lived mostly um, in the communities. Sometimes I was placed uh, with families when I worked on certain State Department programs in Pakistan. I, I was placed with both the Sunni and the Shia fam sure. family, excuse me, and um mostly lived out when I worked in university as I lived in the neighborhoods nearby. So it, it's a different experience than if you are just coming in as a reporter or you're just coming in with the military or working with the State Department and USAID 
most people don't realize that for at least the last 20 years, most of those people don't go out from their very, very secured compounds. They hire the contractors to go out and do the work, and then we report in. So that's why I wrote the book. And that's, yeah, that's common Saudi Arabia and some of these other places. The Americans don't even get off the bases, in my understanding, not too often. It's all very Americanized. What was your experience working in the uh, with uh, varieties of different indigenous peoples in different, you know, continents? Did you find similarities in their experiences or, or differences or how did that uh, make an impression upon you? Well, very general overview. I mean, I... It's a, this part's a long story, but I'll, just briefly I'll say that I've been fortunate, I would say, in my life that many times, it's not that I wanted to, and, and my career has gone not that I planned it this way. A lot of times I actually didn't want to go certain places or meet certain people, but I, I would stop myself either because my family was young, my children were young at the time, or whatever other reason, and then it would just keep coming back around as I, okay, I can't avoid that this is what I'm supposed to do. So I was a sun dancer with the Lakota for over 12 years here in the United States years ago. Um, when I worked for Les Witten and Jack Anderson many years ago, they and the um, American Indian movement and those aspects of uh, native rights were coming up in the 70s and in the 80s. Uh, I was on the tangential part of that and then gotten more involved in the ceremony and spiritual aspect of it. And then when I worked uh, both with the Gumbangi population in Australia and then invited to work with the uh, Maori in New Zealand, um, again, I was invited. And uh, before I was working in education, after foreign service, when I decided I wasn't going to go into the foreign service, I was in a special program there in the 70s. And after that, I decided I was not going to, it was the end of Vietnam War, I decided that was not going to be for me. And I pursued my own personal ambition of being a triple threat singer, dinger, singer dancer, and actress, and went to New York, studied at Circle in the Square on Broadway, and worked in all the medium in uh, the United States, mostly in New York, but in other um, parts of the country as well. And in working with indigenous populations, um, singing and dancing both, not just as entertainment, but as means of rapport and ceremonies is very important. I just, if I had time, I'll just say a small anecdote is that when I was doing- Can you, sorry to interrupt, but can you speak into your mic a little clearly? And I'm there's a little bit like you're touching the mic Oh, or something. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, yes. Uh, for most of the work with indigenous people, they've invited me, and this may sound strange to some of your audience, but a lot of times it has to do with if you're dreamed, if you have a dream about that, and and they dream you, and you dream them, and uh, so it's not straightforward. Like, <laughs> in fact, there's no filling out an application or so right. forth. Um, so the Goombangi elders, um, when I was working with them, uh, you know, I'd say with all the indigenous, even in Borneo and so forth, you know, it takes a while before, of course, they'll trust me. It's not just me wanting to work. Gotcha. Um, and so. And what, and what kind of, you do training them or educating them? What was your kind of work with indigenous peoples? 
it depended. Uh, I've done lots of different things. I mean, I work mostly both in health and education, but uh, also working uh, for many years um, finding stolen children. Gotcha. And that's happening a lot with these indigenous, a lot of the children, certainly in Canada, I've heard stories about indigenous and just like real nightmare stories. Are those uh, stories similar around the world? Yes, they're often targeted, even here where I am in Alaska. Wow. Different kind of grooming now with the net. And is it for sex trafficking or is people trying to, you know, take abduct the children and sell them like for adoption or something? Anybody who deliberately harms or puts children in harm's way is a kind of person you want to, they're not a good person, right? They're the most wicked type of people, the kind of people that throw acid on little girls, you know, and laugh about it, the kind of people that traffic children for their organs, for sex. I mean, they're horrible people. Right. And um, so, um, unfortunately, everything goes. And with the Internet, it's sadly much easier to do. Wow, that's disturbing. Because you find like you order products. And wow. you have very unset, unscrupulous doctors and teachers and nurses and all professions who are complicit. Wow. And I, I'm complicit, I mean, not just looking the other way. Wow. So they're involved in it, too. And are you saying that people are traveling cross jurisdictions, cross states and nations or international boundaries to engage in kind of indigenous trafficking, trafficking of indigenous children? Well, I won't be talking about that on this show. Okay. Um, I, I think I, I'm with you that I, I, I worked briefly with Ted Gunderson when he was still alive. And when I worked with Jack Anderson and Les Witten many, many years ago, I learned a lot from working with them about research and about how to verify certain activities and what to look for. Um, and I would say that, you know, sadly, uh, as moral grounds encompass and foundations of what is right and wrong have deteriorated and belief in God is deteriorated or any accountability, so has crime. Sorry. Especially crime against children who are the most vulnerable and the weakest. They have no power to fight. And for people who don't know, like I don't know the name Les Witten, but I'm familiar with Jack Anderson. Can you explain to the audience who Jack Anderson and Les Witten were and their importance? I was in my 20s when, again, I was invited to work <coughs> with them um, in Washington, D.C. I was on a special project. There were three brown stone sort of houses that housed these particular offices at the time. Um, Jack Anderson and Les Witten, they both worked together, although Les Witten was the less well-known, but uh, certainly just as important. He just, um, yeah, he... There were, there was right next to us was uh, the assassination project with a number of people working on the assassinate the Kennedy assassinations, um, the national suggestion box at that time where people from all over could write in, and there was no internet, so they literally wrote in uh, what to investigate in Washington and, and other parts of uh, the country. That I was part of that team, and then became part of the. You know, it's amazing how much responsibility I was able to be given in the 20s, the, when I was in my 20s, um, that you just can't have these days, I think. But I 
then became head of uh, part of the investigative reporting and was responsible for putting in the preliminary ideas for the Good Morning America show that they were both on at different times. Um, and Les Witten was very involved in uh, the American Indian movement as well. So he was a big gotcha. influence. Right, AIM, or whatever they called it back then, the acronym. And Anderson was kind of like a real gumshoe kind of investigative journalist. Like he was a real journalist. Okay. Everybody was in those days. Um, ben Bradley, all those people, you know. Um, it's, you know, it's not, now I call it the Washington Compost. You know, it, in those days, no, it, they were really vigilant. They were really visionary. And they were, they had a very high code in terms of verifying information. And we used to play a game at lunch, five phone calls. This is before the internet. You know, in those days, luckily, you talked to everybody. You weren't on your screens all the time, and you learned a lot. And, um, you know, people would say it wasn't PC, especially for females. That's all right. You know, you got tough skin, and you really learned. And uh, the five phone calls was they give you a name. Let's just say right now somebody's out of the circuit. Let's say Tony Blair. And they say, how could you reach that person in five phone calls? Um, we, we just play all these kind of quote-unquote games, but they were good ideas for strategies, and it was sort of like red teaming, how to get information. Right. And how did you link up with Ted Gunderson? That was because of some murders of children in Australia called the Barraville Murders, and um, he, I had originally written to him for some help. I'd been uh, he'd been recommended to me. I didn't think he'd respond because I was sending a snail mail letter from Australia to the United States. And then when I happened to be in the United States during the time that they were still investigating, I gave him my phone number of where I would be. And he called me a couple of times. We had one long conversation. I never met him in person, um, but for hours. Uh, and he was very helpful in terms of how to go about uh, also being very careful because this was more than just a local murder of three children. Right. And did you, and was he, he was retired at that time. Is that correct? Or was he still working for the FBI? No, he had, re he had retired from the FBI, I believe, but just retired because this was in the early 90s. Yeah, because there's different, you know, speeches of him that are still floating around the internet. And what was you? Did you have a positive impression of him, or did you absolutely feel positive? Gotcha. Yes, I know a lot of people have had slandered him, and they always will for people who are whistleblowers, especially in that aspect of life. Anybody who wants to work against trafficking is probably going to have a very hard time, um, and. Yes, I think he's a person of integrity, and everybody I know that's worked with him directly um, with any of cases of any consequence has the same opinion. Interesting. Well, that's good to know. And uh, what about what's your thoughts of Ralph Nader? I mean, he seemed to have kind of dropped off or maybe retired, but he was definitely a really a crusader for consumerism and consumers. Can you talk about your experiences with him? Yes, I worked. Um, on a small project in Washington, D.C. At last time, it was with on, on eight, investigating the efficacy of HMOs, health maintenance organizations, and trying at that time to think of an 
alternative way of administering healthcare in the United States that was a specific project. Uh, I met him a couple of times. He was not a social person, but he was a very warm person, if you can understand the difference. And it's not, you know, people say he's not personable. He's not, you know, uh, coming in and slapping people on the back and going, good job. And no, nothing like that, but um, very diligent. And at that time, I mean, he it's before he ran for president of the United States and so forth. I thought he was really earnest in everything he did. I think he was. I mean, I think he was very successful. I think he, I forgot some of the, the changes that he made because of his With kind cars. of yeah, cars, the yeah. industry, especially. That's right. That's yeah. it. Well, we are at about 40 minutes. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to add or anything you would like to, or anything I missed that, uh, where can people get this book when it comes out? Thank you. Yes. I, the traveling off the X which is about a lot of the places I was just speaking about, will be released in October by Defiance Press of Texas. And Defiance Press of Texas, this coming week, July 29th, is having a rally against censorship, which is free to the public from 7 to 11 p.m. July 29th at the Marriott in Woodlands, right outside of Houston, Texas. If you're anywhere nearby, please come. And lots of the authors from Defiance Press, including myself, will be there. Uh, Sheriff Arpaio from Arizona will be speaking, as well as some other authors. And I also write my poetry books in creative, not in fiction or poetry. I write under Joe Patty. Patty is my family name from my father's side. And uh, the newest one is called Clash, Poems from Conflict Zones. It's not for the faint-hearted. It has poems entitled What Do You Do in a Bunker and Held Hostage and Bike Bomber. But for people who have been in those conflict zones and for some of my colleagues in Iraq and other places who have seen some of the poems and they really encouraged me to go ahead and write and publish it, it's now available on Amazon. It's called Clash, Poems from Conflict Zones. It'll be on audio soon. And I included the artwork of my son, Denali Schmidt, who sadly perished with his father on K2 in July of 2013. But it's a way to keep um, his painting and his work alive. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, where, what about your social media? Is there social media <laughs> contacts? I will say I've gotten more on social media. Or email. Um, the book and so forth. I do have a website. Okay. And it's a long last name. It's Joe Patty Munisteri, M-U-N-I-S-T-E-R-I dot org. And I'm on Connect Zing, which is a new platform under Joe Patty Munisteri, Intrepid Explorer. And on Twitter, although I don't post so much personal, just uh, public events and so forth, Joe Patty Intrepid Explorer. Gotcha. And my email and everything, contact details are on my website. Gotcha. JoePattyMunisteri.org, you said? Correct. And, that's it. and the title of the book, again, is Traveling Off the X. It'll be out in a couple months. And the author, again, is Joe Patty Munisteri. Thank you so much, Joe Patty. Thank you very much, William. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. Are you still there? I am.